Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Hello and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us today. We have a really different show for you, a topic that I haven't done before and I've wanted to do for a very long time. We are going to be talking about teen sexuality, ADHD, and Asperger's. My guest tonight is Dr. Wes Crenshaw. He is the author of I Always Want to Be Where I'm Not, Successful Living with ADD and ADHD, and co-author of the forthcoming book, Consent-Based Sex Education, Parenting Teens in an Internet Age. And um, Dr. Crenshaw says that a key point of adolescence is to organize one's sexuality. So for kids with ADD or ADHD and those that are higher-functioning autism spectrum, uh, that can present a lot of really unique challenges. And parents, you know, if, if you have a teen, you know that um, dealing with sexuality in a typical neurotypical teen is very difficult. And you may find yourself totally unprepared for dealing with sexuality in a teen with ADD or Asperger's. And that can include a lot of different impulsive sexual acting out um, and asexuality, especially in Asperger's, to fluidity and gender and sexual identity. So we're going to talk about all of that and a lot more. Dr. Wes Crenshaw is a board certified in couples and family psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology, and he is also the co-author of the forthcoming book, Consent-Based Sex Education, Parenting Teens in an Internet Age, which is just fantastic, and you'll be able to go to his website or our website and get all the information you need. So right now, please welcome Dr. Wes Crenshaw. How are you? I am doing great, Marianne. Good to be here. Oh, you know, we've been trying to schedule this um, interview for so long. I'm so glad that we finally got it together because uh, we have a lot to cover. There's a lot to talk about. Um, you know, this is a very broad topic, and there's a lot about ADHD and autism spectrum disorders that impacts teen uh, sexuality. So why don't we start off by just briefly telling us how you got interested in this area. Well, it was not an area that I was expecting to get into, and several uh, factors conspired to get me started on it. I've always worked with teenagers and young adults, and it, it took me about 10 minutes in practice to realize if you're going to work with uh, teenagers and young adults, you have to be able to work with sexuality. So 22 years and 24,000 hours of client contact later, I think I have uh, 
have seen and talked about and experienced just about everything there is. Then uh, I also have a child who's just turning 18 this month, in fact, or next month, in fact, who uh, does have Asperger's and ADHD, and my younger son is uh, an add or himself. And so this all kind of came looking for me, and I've spent uh, several years getting caught up, let's say. Right, and you know, I think that um, for parents that have kids with ADHD, you know, you're dealing with so many other issues. You know, sometimes it's, um, you know, comprehension, learning issues, um, social issues that, you know, as they get older, you know, the sexuality really isn't something that you're prepared for. And I think for parents um, of children that have Asperger's, it's especially different because I think oftentimes parents are naive to think that this isn't something that they're interested in or they don't understand the disinterest, which we're, we're going to talk about later. Um, but let's start by understanding, you know, what all teens um, are going through these days and dealing with sexuality and, um, you know, what parents can do to help them. Because I know, you know, um, it's funny because, you know, as you have kids and as they get older, you know, you see things differently, but there's this, you know, naive thinking that, well, no, I'm just going to tell them not to have sex. And you know, that's just not going to work. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, for some, for, you know, for other for religious reasons or other reasons, they really believe in this, but you still need to prepare. So, you know, what are kids dealing with with sexuality today? It's much different than when we were kids. Yeah, it really is. And I was asked once on another show if I had completely given up on abstinence. Uh, and I said, no, I just don't count on it anymore. And right. that's a pretty good advice. Uh, the The world of sexuality for teenagers at this point is is not like it was even three or four years ago and certainly not like it was ten years ago. Uh, w- there are just multiple trends that have uh, changed where kids are in the relationship they have to each other and to their own sexuality. And uh, you know, it would probably take us a show just to get through those. But at the top of the list is the change in how what we would call dating is no longer the norm. What we have is the the famous hookup uh, and hangout culture where sexuality is expressed on average in a much more casual fashion. And a lot of the research um, really underestimates and, and doesn't capture how uh, critical this is in kids' lives. I, I often say that in high schools today, the, there's a group of kids who are having sex and there's a group of kids who would like to be having sex. And the research does not capture that. It just assumes there is uh, uh, this group over here that are choosing to remain abstinent. And there is. There's a small group that is Mm -hmm. doing that. But by and large, uh, there are kids who are waiting to get into what I refer to as the attractive partners pool, uh, the the ones who are in the dating pool. And so once they're in the dating pool, if you've got kids that are already actively dating, Uh, you need to be assuming that there will be expressions of sexuality not far behind. We also have a real significant trend in the last just three years toward gender and sexual identity being um, much more uh, differences, diversities being much more accepted. Today, it is much more, in most major cities and in many smaller towns, it's much worse to be the person who criticizes people for their gender or sexual identity than it is to be the person who expresses uh, a non-heteronormative 
identity. And so that has changed. We see the under 30 crowd being much more accepting of gay marriage, for example, but one example. And that's much more present now in high schools and middle schools and a much greater willingness for people to be what's called pansexual, which means to not identify as either gay or straight, but instead to identify with a given person and kind of work your sexuality around that. So that's just a handful of the trends that we're seeing. All right, you know, I'm, I'm here in um, New York, and um, both in, in the high school and in a private school that my kids have gone to, um, you know, it was just very accepted. Um, you know, there were very openly gay teachers, openly gay students, and, um, you know, I think it lent to, you know, a much more accepting environment. Um, it made it a lot easier on a lot of these kids. Um, you know, and today we're talking about consensual um sexual behavior. So your new book is going to be about uh, consent and how it needs to play a more central role in um, how we educate our kids. So, you know, we need to educate ourselves first. So, you know, it's a lot more than just no means no. Um, You know, it's a lot more complex. So what, you know, how would you uh, discuss that issue? Yeah, I've come to a realization here in the last year, year and a half, that the idea of consent is a much more complex and rich idea than we realized. You know, we've moved kind of from no means no to uh, only yes means yes, or what's also referred to as enthusiastic consent. Between partners, you have to really be sure you have an affirmative yes. And that's Mm -hmm. great, but it's even more than that. And what we've coined around here in developing this book and this project is uh, the idea that there is an emotional consent, that we really need to be teaching kids uh, how to say yes to sex. And I, I thought about subtitling the book, teaching kids to say yes to sex, but I was pretty sure that wouldn't sell. Um, But the idea behind that is that if you don't teach kids how, when, why they might choose to have sex, then they can't really have an authentic choice to say no. And that's the root of consent. The other problem we have that forever in our society and many others, we have exerted a great deal of influence or some might say control over young people's sexuality. Now, at some point in their lives, of course that makes sense, just like you don't have your child at five years of age cross the street by themselves or go to the mall, uh, we wouldn't say, well, children can choose sexuality at any age or choose to have sex at any age. But as kids move through adolescence, that becomes less our purview and more theirs. And uh, we have to really watch out to not make control-based messages because what we're doing is conveying to our kids that they should be other-focused in their sexuality, we should that they should be um, listening to someone else about who or what they are sexually, and you can see where that ends up in a negative uh, way as they go out into the dating pool, out into the partner world, and and expect someone else to define who they are. And no one, as a parent, really wants to have their child's sexuality or sexual expression controlled or defined by anyone else. So we're really trying to help parents think that decision through and help. Uh, get into a dialogue and a conversation with kids about sexuality instead of a lecture. So why don't you give us some um, examples of control-based messages? Well, the best one I've ever seen, I I think I can sum it up, there's a a T-shirt. If you Google feminist 
rules for dating my daughter. <laughs> there are two these two T-shirts. This one T-shirt mm-hmm. that guy, that tends to be guys wear is all these things about, um, you know, basically killing the boy that's sexually attracted to the the daughter. Then there's this other T-shirt, and it says. Um, four rules for dating my daughter. Uh, I don't make the rules. You don't make the rules. She makes the rules. I think I'm missing one in there somewhere. But the idea is we need to be teaching kids how to make those choices. And when we tell them you you can't uh, date, you can't be with an opposite sex or a desired sex partner, Till you're 16, or you can't have sex until you're married, or you're out of the home, or something. We're really teaching them how to be other focused. We're saying we're in control of your sexuality. And not only is that impractical and statistically false, it's also not a good message to convey no. to kids. Well, but you do. You want your child to be able to come to you. You want them to know that they can talk to you about anything and that you're approachable. Um, so you know, and even as a matter of using an age, like you said, you know, like some parents may say, "Oh, well, when you're 16, you can date." You know, I've got four daughters, and <clears throat> I can tell you that it's more based on who you're going to date and the maturity. Um, you know, especially we're going to go into ADHD now, and you know, one one issue with um, ADHD is maturity. Um, so, you know, the, the, you could have an ADHD son or daughter who's 18, but, you know, they may be, you know, really 15 as far as being um, ready or mature enough um, to have a sexual relationship. So what challenges do ADHD teens face in dealing with their sexuality? Yeah, you make such a good point, um, both about maturity in general and the way that it is affected by uh, ADD and ADHD. We know from the literature that you have about a two to three year developmental lag. And so while a young person might be 18 or in you know many states the age of consent is 16 or 17, they might be that age chronologically, but their ability to make good decisions and to be what I call a good consumer of sexuality, to be really an informed consumer, is limited. And so what one is caught, and believe me, I'm caught in this bind in my office frequently, between recognizing the the power that a person has in their own lives and trying to guide that power. And with kids that have ADHD, I sometimes feel like that's a, sort of like trying to land a crashing plane. You're, you know that you have to get it in safely and you have to hold on to the controls, but you aren't really fully in charge of this. So what I try to teach parents is to be very much the coach to their child. And, of course, they do this better on things like picking up their room or studying. When they have to learn to coach on sexuality, then that becomes more uncomfortable. And one of the things we're going to be doing in the book uh, is uh, to really script out these conversations that parents will have with kids uh, that can be applied to a variety of situations from, you know, your child coming to you and talking about same-sex attraction to contraception to even, um, you know, unplanned pregnancy, really helping parents prepare to deal with those things. And some of that will be for special needs kids. Uh, How do you make some of those decisions when a child, whether they are identified or not, is very immature? So we're going to really try to help parents, coach parents how to coach kids 
with very specific scripts because I've learned <laughs> that if you don't have it down that clearly, people just sit quietly on their hands. Right. And, um, you know, as far as, you know, I, I would imagine, like, let's just put out a scenario that you have a um, ADHD you know, let's just say son. You have an ADHD son, and he's, you know, 16 years old, and he really likes this girl, and his friends are becoming sexually active. Um, you know, what type of conversation would you have with him? Because I, I know that it's, at that age, kids are very, uh, sometimes are very sensitive to having differences such as ADHD or later we're going to talk about Asperger's. So how would a parent approach this? Should they approach it from the... Um, direction of, well, you know, you have some unique differences or challenges, or do they just go mainstream? Well, I think all parents, we we have a model we call the PLUS model that we've developed for the book, and I think it works across all kids, but you have to adjust it based on the child. So I'll give you the model, and then we'll talk about how it might apply to that situation. Mm-hmm. The, the PLUS model stands for um, pause listen, understand, and be sex positive. And I try to teach parents to to think this through, talk to themselves in front of the mirror, talk to themselves on the way to work in the morning, as if they were really with the child working through this. And so whether the child is coming to you, let's say, with an impulsive sexual behavior, or you've caught the child, quote-unquote, caught, and and catching kids is probably 80% of how these conversations get started. The first thing the parent needs to do is just pause. The same thing we teach people with ADD works for the upset parent. And that is sit down if you can't if you can't be affirming in this moment. And many people can't. That's forgivable mm-hmm. because it's a shocking experience whatever it may be. Leave the situation and come back later. Think through what you're going to say. The pause is so crucial in really preventing people from saying things they're going to have to take back later to their kids, things that could be quite life-altering. Working with adults, you'll be surprised to find out what they remember in this critical moment about sexuality from 20 years ago that has had a negative effect on them sexually to this day. So the the parent wants to pause, really think this through. the, uh, and and also, you know, embarrassing, um, you know, yeah. the child isn't going to help either, so. Exactly. It, it, it does great harm, creating a shame situation. So, so then the parent wants to really listen and say for, I'm going to pick one out, say you find pornography. The child's been looking at pornography, and there's about a 9 out of 10 chance most parents are going to run into this. Um, then you, you say, tell me about this. I want to hear what is interesting to you about this. Now, you might say, well, it's pretty obvious what's interesting. But asking that question and letting them talk about it a little bit is the best way to move forward on that and to show some you know, empathy as well as concern for it. And then we have the understanding. The, the you is understanding. And there are two sides of understanding. The first is to understand the child. And in the case of a child with ADD or Asperger's, there's more to understand, and you want to think this through. I can give you such a long list of examples of things uh, parents were not expecting sexually from these kids, and you have to really process 
and understand where they're coming from. But likewise, you have to understand your own triggers. For parents who maybe had a negative sexual experience as a teen, maybe there was even some trauma around sexuality, these are triggering events for them. If a person has a tremendous aversion to pornography or something, this may trigger them uh, to really feel something that's more about the parent, legitimately about the parent, than it is about the child, and you'll over-respond and respond out of your own frustration. And finally, the, the, the S is sex positive. We really, What it means to be sex positive doesn't mean anything goes and that you're condoning sex and that we all think kids should just carry on in any way. It means that you are teaching kids to do what they mean to do, to be intentional in their sexual expression. You would, You probably wouldn't be surprised to know how many kids today are not acting intentionally with their sexuality. This is the idea of emotional consent, that you're doing what you mean to do. And the parent wants to really affirm what, whether they agree or not with the child's sexual conduct. They need to affirm the part about choosing and doing this intentionally. Well, you can imagine, of course, with kids with ADD or ADHD, that's the hardest part of the whole process because they're not known to be the best think-before-you-act kind of people. Right. And right. so the parent will have to really work extra hard in those scenarios to help them think through, is this really what I'm choosing to do? And the more the parent does that in this calm plus manner, the more the child is actually going to take the parent seriously and, and take some influence from them. Right. And, you know, any parent that has, you know, especially child ADHD, Asperger's, you know, whatever it may be, um, knows that you live your life being proactive. And I know that exactly. I, you know, I've discussed this, this topic with a lot of parents, and, um, you know, a lot of parents just see things very differently than I see it. Um, and just, um, you know, I think they have their um, parents in the back of their heads, and they feel that discussing birth control is encouraging sexual behavior or condoning sexual behavior. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I would imagine that being in, having impulsivity, I mean, a lot of these teens can't even remember to bring their homework home that discussing birth control is an important topic. So, you know, how do you feel about that? Oh, well, I'm with you. And and per- nowhere is it more important than in the impulsive, not thinking before you're acting crowd. I, I had four pregnant teenage girls on my caseload back in 1997. One of them was 13. And that was the day I said, you know, like Scarlett O'Hare is God is my witness. I am never going to go through this again. And I have become very uh, knowledgeable about birth control. I'm currently completing a certification or a health certificate at the University of Michigan in sex education and sex therapy in part because I really want to be up to date on all of these uh, these issues, and especially the latest in contraception. I, in 22, almost 23 years, I have never, literally never met a teenager who started having sex because they're on birth control. Yeah. I have met tons who started having sex prior to being on birth control. 
And so this is something we work with parents on uh, when we see a risk factor or, in most states, kids can uh, access birth control independently of a parent if the child doesn't want to disclose that if they're uh, above the age where they can access right. but birth you know, control. We work with mother, them to support that. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you have a son obviously discussing, you know, um, sexually transmitted diseases and, you know, being prepared and respect and, I um, mean, you know, all the things that we spoke about. Um, but, you know, for a mother with daughters, I think it's much more important that, you know, you, that your daughter can come to you and go to a good doctor and maybe not go to a clinic where they may not get the best treatment. So, um, you know, parents sometimes Absolutely. have to put their... Um, you know, whatever their thinking was aside. One thing that we didn't plan on discussing, but I did want to just bring up and just very briefly is that, you know, sometimes um, there's a fine line between ADHD and bipolar um, disorder. Um, There's a lot of comorbidity. And with mania can come hypersexuality. So if, you know, just just to throw out there, if you have a, if, if a parent is listening that has a child that may be more on the bipolar um, end of the disorder, um, how do they deal with hypersexuality? Because that's a really serious problem. Oh, yeah. Welcome to my world, Marianne. I, uh, again, if you're going to work with teenagers and the minute people find out, and they do because I do radio appearances like this uh, in the area, the minute they find out that you do this, then people are beating a path to your door. And that's a good thing. People should never uh, hesitate to seek these kinds of services for kids, especially if they have hypersexuality going on. Now, in fairness, as a a person who does sex therapy as well as a family psychologist, uh, we always want to carefully define what it means to be hypersexual. And just so people know, it it isn't just that someone likes to have sex. I have plenty of kids on my caseload who really like to have sex, and many of them are pretty responsible about it. I appreciate responsibility in that regard. But there is that small minority for whom that sex becomes a, a process of acting out and they are not making a consent-based intentional choice but instead are responding to mania and it, it's it, it's easier to say someone is hypersexual than to actually diagnose it and treat it 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 is a less common factor than we think with teens but when it appears you will know it and uh, it, it's the the most significant impulse control you're going to see is someone who's mm-hmm. just driven to have sex and not in situations that are at all in their best interest. Right. So that's just something that parents, I just wanted to throw that out there, um, that, you know, yes. if, if you do have a child with bipolar, that if you do see this type of really excessive behavior, it's something you need to speak to your um, teen's doctor about. You know, one of the trademark ADHD trademarks, I always say, is, you know, doing the same thing over and over um, with a bad result and expecting a different outcome. Yeah. So I you know, say the same thing. Right. And, and you know, you, you write and you talk a lot about monogamy. Um, and relationships. So, you know, I would assume that being an ADD, ADHD teen is going to be harder in a lot of different aspects as far as relationships. I, I mean, look at them on the, look at a lot of these kids on the playground. They have trouble just socially interacting. So relationships must be really challenging. So, um, you know, what, as far as monogamy or true relationship would be more difficult for an ADHD teen? Well, yeah, there's a reason my book is called I Always Want to Be Where I'm Not. Um, It describes very much that sense of restlessness that 
people with ADD, even if they don't have hyperactivity, feel mentally, feel like being somewhere else. And when that comes to partnering, uh, you could call the book, I Always Want to Be With Someone, I'm Not. And these kids, and adults too, it's it's just an extension of it, really struggle with um, boredom and with the inability to uh, to do what we call mind mapping, which is to understand other people's behavior and what it signifies and to plan yourself in response to that. And they uh, struggle with what I call in my book, uh, psychological integrity. And that's different than moral integrity. What it means is to be consistent over time. Well, if you put all those things together, that makes for a really hard relationship. And a lot of my uh, ADD folks really struggle with staying with one partner. Um, I've been married for uh, 30 30 years here in two weeks. And my wife is the same person she was 30 years ago uh, in terms of just, you know, who she is. We all grow and change. But it's the same person day in and day out. And we know that boredom is very difficult for adults with ADD. You can imagine how difficult it is for teens. And this can make them very frustrating in the dating pool. Um, It can give them some advantages in that they can walk away more easily sometimes from relationships that are not working for them. But they also walk away from the relationships that are. And so there's a lot of coaching oh, that goes into really right. thinking it through. Right. I always say that love isn't just something you feel, it's something you do. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Um, you know, we have um, another segment left. So I want to get into um, spectrum disorders, high-functioning autism, Asperger's in particular, and how, um, you know, how, how those um, disorders affect teen sexuality. Um, you know, what's the core issue here? Because, you know, I've done several interviews um, on the um, core emotions of Asperger's, and I did this impromptu um, interview with uh, Temple Grandin, and she, you know, was talking mm-hmm. about that fear and anxiety really are the core emotion. So I would imagine if you add that into the sexual pool, um, as far as a lot of other issues, um, it, it's going to be quite complex. So, you know, what do you see as the core issues or difficulties in um these uh, kids on the spectrum having sex. Yeah, I think you're right on. I think Temple is right on with that, too. I I will say that just scratches the surface of how divergent this becomes. Um, You know, you don't have to do sex therapy for very long to realize that anxiety and fear are the enemies of good sexual uh, relationships. And so those do play in quite often. And we see, we just see such a broad array. What I like to say about the the Asperger's and high-functioning autism crowd is that they have all the same issues sexually that everyone else does, except they're just sort of in neon. They're like these brightly colored versions of all of these issues. So, for example, you will get the sense of of uh, worry, let's take that one, about sexuality, and that will turn into what's now referred to as an asexual identity. Uh, one of the changes we talked about earlier in the show is how there are all these kind of new ways to be sexual, all this new language. I'm lucky to have young people to teach me all these things. Um, asexuality is becoming more and more popular. Now, before parents start standing up and giving this idea, you know, a standing ovation, thank goodness we can make our teens asexual, 
that isn't necessarily a good thing. It keeps people mm-hmm. from really connecting over the long haul emotionally with others. And that's part of what we have with Asperger's is the difficulty of connecting emotionally. So there are a whole bunch of ways that can play out, but that's just one of them. Another one that's probably, well, and I know it is considerably more disturbing for parents, is that there is a whole array of, I don't even have a good umbrella term for it because it's so diverse, but it, it a whole array of role-playing scenarios mm-hmm. that are sexual in nature. And a very well-known online comic book is called Homestuck, H-O-M-E-S-T-R-U-C-K. I think I just said struck. It's stuck. And this is a very well-known anime kind of thing. And there's a whole... uh, Those of us who know about it under the hood know that there's a whole sexual role-playing system within this comic book. A lot of people don't realize this. So they will go to conventions, cons, and have all these role-play scenarios and do what's called cosplay, which is costume play. And that's just one of, Homestuck's just one of those. There are people who will uh, dress up in furry costumes and take on animal personalities. So this is a like a uh, amazing Disney world for a number of people on the spectrum because uh, they're able to sort of take on characters and put themselves in defined roles sexually and connect mm-hmm. with other people who are characters in defined roles. And it solves a bunch of the problems of ambiguity and mind mapping that aren't easy for them. So in one sense, it's sort of a great, you know, a great panacea. In the other sense, it's very easy to get yourself into situations that you cannot manage when the role plays or the um, scripts don't play out the way you think they are. Right, because, you know, I I read where you had written that, um, and I'll just quote it, for all of us, sex is an experience that involves fantasy, visual imagery, intimacy, Mm -hmm. rules of social engagement, physical touch, mind mapping, and so on. And we regulate that against a backdrop of reality that we constantly test and retest. None of that um, is what people on the spectrum are good at. So, um, well, I sound you know, so smart expand? when you read it. Yeah, back tell you, me. doesn't it sound good when I read it? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you know, when I when I was when I had read that, I said, you know, I mean, we can't generalize. I mean, obviously, this is mm-hmm. not everybody. But you know, a lot of these things that you you talked about, you know, are true. So, you know, how does the fantasy, the mind mapping, the social engagement, you know, how does that affect Asperger's dating, never mind sex? And then I want to go back to the asexuality because I think that's a very, I I really want to talk about that a little bit more. It's very confusing to parents. So, you know, what, how would that play out um, for somebody with Asperger's? Well, it, it, and this is why I say it's just sort of like in neon. It's like the same problems teenagers have squared. What, For example, um, and again, as you said, generalizing is so tricky, but here are some trends I see. So you'll see a young person going through adolescence not very connected to anybody sexually, not interested in it, not maybe if they're pursuing pornography, it's very kind of not sexual, very sexually arousing to them. If they're uh, hanging out with friends that are 
desired gender friends. There's not a lot of sexual interplay or anything. And then all of a sudden, they'll get to about 18 or 19, which is very late to begin experimenting emotionally with other people. And they'll have some kind of a an awakening, I guess, to use a cliched term, but it's usually with somebody who is really unusual. They're very attracted to the unusual. And so they'll get into cosplay or they'll find a, a, a what's referred non-pejoratively to as a queer friend, someone who's non, not straight. And then they will just have this like tsunami. It's almost like they pulled the pulled the little block out of the Jenga puzzle and the whole thing comes apart. And in one sense, this can be very exhilarating because they've never had this kind of emotion. They've been fearful of it and disconnected from it. And in other another sense, they didn't build up to it like most kids have done. So it's very overwhelming. And you will see among the high-functioning autistic crowd a lot of those breakdowns, those emotional meltdowns. Um, and and sometimes they come at very inopportune moments. So the, a big part of that process is, is, again, coaching. I spend a lot of time doing a surprising amount of what I you would just have to call sexual coaching. Here, here is how you receive touch. Here is how you give touch. Here is how you say no. Here is how you say yes. And it's, it becomes very codified. And my experience has been that if you don't, as the therapist or the parent, help teach that code, kids will absolutely pick it up on the Internet. And maybe that is good, and maybe it is not, depending on the source. But you have to be a part of the conversation, uh, or it can go off in some interesting directions. Right. You know, and I know that, um, you know, I've spoken to many parents, and I know a lot of um, Asperger's, um, you know, that are Asperger's teens, late teens, early adolescents, like you said, in their in their 20s that have never had a relationship, that have never had a sexual yes. relationship. Um, and that becomes very worrisome for parents because parents always worry um, when you have a child with any type of special needs or disability, you know, what will happen when I'm gone? You hope that they're going to find a good person yes. that they're going to, um, you know, have to build a life with. So. You know, I do you find also that asexuality is quite common, or is that something that's just common, like you said, until they reach a certain age? Such a good question. I'm going to say that it is it has not been, and that it is becoming more so. And then I have about three qualifications on that. It's very funny because I uh, live and my main office is in a university town in the. Midwest in Kansas, and then I have offices in Kansas City. And it's very funny because our community is much more like it would be on the coasts. We see all of the it's very queer-friendly, very cosmopolitan place. So I get to see all these things in a microcosm you wouldn't expect to be anywhere else. And we really have seen a trend here that's changing lately in what what people are willing to identify as. And one of those things they're identifying as is asexual. I I mean, it's it's funny. I'm not making light of it, but I had a kid the other day who I think is, at the very least, has what I call a sliver of autism. I think maybe it's a bigger sliver than that. But she, she was in here, she's 13, and she was telling me, well, you know, I identify asexual. And part of me was sort of like, 
yay. And part of me was like, where did you come up with that? Well, she studied right. it on the Internet. And okay. and as I said to her, are you sure you're ready to make that identity yet? And she said, well, you know, I am only 13. So oh, kids okay. that young, it, I mean, it's kind of funny. She's much more sure now, a year later. Yeah, but, because, you know, I would imagine that, that a teen would be concerned if they lack desire. Because let's face it, I mean, every all the TV shows, all the reality shows, you know, all right. the music is very sexually based. So I would imagine that that has to be very confusing to somebody that really isn't at that yes. level where they're having those type of desires. So, But, you know, I want to move on because we only have a few minutes left. But I want to move on to, you know, there is not... Um, a show really that I could think of that I've done other than shows on gay and lesbians, um, teens, um, that doesn't involve sensory issues. Every disorder yes. for some reason has sensory issues and tactile problems. So, you know, that has to play a role, um, you know, in touch because some pe- some people don't like to be touched. Some people like, you know, constantly touching. It, you know, there are unusual sensory sensitivities, that, you know, connected to sexual behavior. So, you know, that has to be difficult because, you know, they may wind up with somebody that, you know, likes to cuddle, likes to touch, likes to hug, and not understand why this person is trying to hug them because, you know, it, it, it's physically uncomfortable for them. So how do you deal with, with the, you know, the romantic part, the cuddling, the canoodling? Yeah, it's such a it's such a difficult situation. So this to me is where um you know, we've talked already about the coaching part of it, but for some people you just can't get them through that. This to me is where the cosplay and the the sort of alternative ways of expressing sexuality actually are helpful. Uh it took me a while to get my head around that cuz I'm like the most vanilla guy you're ever going to meet. And uh, and I've had to really get myself uh, more broadly defined in order to understand some of these things. And I've come to realize that for this crowd, it, it's really a good thing if you can help them get through it to do more of this cosplay. There's a really good, if you haven't ever listened to it, there's a really good episode of This American Life. And it, it, I can't think what it's called, but if you Google it about the tiger, it'll come up. Um, this girl who I can't remember if they mentioned she's on the spectrum, but when you listen to it, it will take you about two minutes to figure that out. And she becomes obsessed with costumes. And what she does with this is to become the mascot for the high school. Even before she's in high school, she becomes the best tiger mascot anybody's ever seen. And she gets into this. She, she's shy and scared and won't talk to anybody at school, won't express herself in any way. The minute she gets into the tiger costume, she becomes this whole other person. And her sister tells the story about it. It's such a moving story. And oh, I have to this Google is, that. You got to listen to it. It's such a good story. I, I listen to it again and again, and because you hear this way, and she—I think she's now in Boise. I think she's at the University of Idaho as their mascot. I think that's where it ends. But uh, this is the same thing if you think about it from a sexual standpoint. Helping kids to kind of get into character one way or the other, whether it's a furry or you know. Mr. Spock, it doesn't matter. It, find a character, find a way to express themselves. Think of it more as as you're acting. And
and this will sometimes help, or that you're experiencing something with a little more distance. And then the second issue is get the partner in. You, if you, even if you have teenagers, um, parents want to make friends with the partners. That's true for every teenager. It's especially mm-hmm. true if your child's on the spectrum. And I routinely, like I had one of my cosplaying Asperger's people, is in a roommate situation in college with five other roommates. I'm I mean, this just made my head hurt thinking about wow. it because it sounds like the worst idea. Yeah, that's uh-huh. the worst scenario ever. <laughs> indeed, and I said before you sign that lease, everybody needs to be in my office, and we need to have a thorough discussion of how this is all going to work. Mm-hmm. And she marched those people in here, and we wow. had a good discussion, and we had rules we put up on the wall, and we meet periodically to be sure that they are enforced. Now it's still a rough road. But it's that level of definition that's required in non-intimate relationships and especially more so in intimate ones. Right. And understanding, you know, in a situation like that where you have roommates and, you know, um, your roommates may be in sexual relationships, you know, understanding that relatedness. You know, but I just want to make sure, I just want to clarify one thing. You, you st- we spoke before about Homestuck and you talk about cosplay. Now, I would imagine, mm-hmm. like everything else on the Internet, that it's a double-edged sword. It could be very helpful in some ways. Yes. But in other ways, I would imagine that, you know, um, more so, I guess, if there's porn or sexually related, that, you know, it, it's probably something that a parent should check the Internet for to see if your your teen is, you know, watching this or engaged in this. And, you know, make sure that they understand that not all of this is based in reality. I mean, is that correct? Or is it a, uh, is it a every, good, safe thing? All true. No, all true. And th- this is this is a whole other worthwhile endeavor sometime. I have a, uh, a whole chapter in the book we're working on, Consent-Based Sex Education, about explicit online content. And today in America, I, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say pornography is the number one sex educator of teens. It is free. It is there everywhere. And and while I happen to support the idea of filtering your computers and iPads and phones, I am mm-hmm. I agree with that idea. Um, you absolutely cannot expect to contain that from your kids, and so parents have to become part of the conversation. And in the book, I go through in detail, more detail than I was comfortable writing about what's problematic about pornography. We all think it's a problem, but no one really thinks about what's a problem. And what parents have to do is to get into a competitive message that says, here's what I think is good about sexual imagery. I know this sounds bizarre, but if you don't say, I believe sexual imagery should clearly have consent of both partners. I believe sexual imagery should show some caring between the partners. If you don't say that, believe you me, the 95% of explicit material that's out there that doesn't fit those kind of criteria will be available to your child to compete with your message. And that's especially true with kids on the spectrum and kids with ADD because they may not have as good of filters as everybody else within themselves. Well, we have a few minutes left, so let's get to the book. Um, you've put a lot of research into this book. Um, you are this. This is really groundbreaking because this is a topic that I can tell you, 
all the parents talk about among each, you know, themselves. Um, but really, nobody has the um, the research or the science behind it. So, um, where can they look for the book? I know that you're doing a Kickstarter campaign, and you can find that on your website, and we have it up on the Coffee Clutch. We just put that up. So, um, tell us a little bit more about the book, and tell us your website. Well, my website is drwest.com, and that is dr west.com. If you leave out the hyphen, you will get a really good blog about uh, a high-fiber diet, which I think is really <laughs> good, but that isn't me. So it's dr-west.com. We are, uh, I am co-authoring this book with a wonderful young woman of 19 who is a sophomore at Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, which is a big college for uh, writing, big liberal arts college for writing. In fact, uh, John Green, who wrote Fault in Our Stars, is a alum of uh, Kenyon. So Katie wrote the – we have a newspaper column here that we've done for 10 years now, and Katie was the co-author a couple of years ago, and she and I decided we wanted to write this book together, Consent-Based Sex Education. So you get not only my uh, – 23 years of experience, but you get Katie's years of experience as a teenager really connected to that age group and to that community, and you get to see Katie on our video on the website as well as me. And the Kickstarter kicks off uh, February 1st. That's how we're going to fund the rest of the development of the book. And if we make our, uh, we have a $15,000 goal. If we make our stretch goal, we're actually uh, going to make videos illustrating these scenarios that you and I have been talking about today, showing that how a parent great. can use our yeah, that's we think visually it's going to be really helpful well, to yeah, see those be very interactions, for the, for the, yeah. especially for the teens on the spectrum. If you could make them directed to the teens themselves, that would be fantastic. So, um, well, if people I'm, are interested in that, we'll do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would see that that would be just you know it's so important because the, that is really you know we need to help the parents you know be able to have the conversation and know how to have the conversation, but um, the kids themselves you know sometimes it's much better in a visual form. So I want to thank you for being my guest. I want everybody to visit the website. It's www.dr-west.wes dot com where you can learn all about Dr. West, you can find out about the book, you can check out the Kickstarter and hopefully <clears throat> help and support this endeavor. Tomorrow we have um, Dr. Sells is going to be doing an unbelievable two-part interview, the nuts and bolts of IEPs and 504s um, with an education attorney, and it is fantastic. So if you can tune in tomorrow for that, and you can always find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Dr. Crenshaw, thank you for joining me. It has been great, Marianne. Thank you very much. Have a great night, everyone.